It's another blessed occasion that we've each been given in terms of health and in terms of the other attributes of life that we can come together and do so in a peaceful consideration on this Sunday afternoon. It's always our heart's desire, of course, to approach our God in a way that would be befitting of His greatness and in a way appropriate to the grandeur with which He is so lovingly and been so good to each of us. As always, as we open the Word of God tonight, and I hope you have your Bible with you, and be turning with me to 1 Samuel 21. We'll be using at least some of the events of that chapter as a part of our consideration this, this evening. As you do that, though, we'll also give some thought at the various portions in the lesson to some other references to this idea, or at least this text, even in other places of the Word of God. The book of 1 Samuel, in the chapters, of course, 31 chapters in total, but what an interesting book. And in fact, as you and I give thought to at least some of the major matters in it, we see the end of the time of the judges, but we also, of course, move into the time of the kingship. Eli is the second to the last judge, the 14th one mentioned in the Old Testament, and he is succeeded by Samuel, the 15th and last judge, and yet, inasmuch as the days of the judges end, soon the people ask for a king. And God, of course, grants the request. But as He does that, you and I soon are introduced to Saul and then to David. And so the book of Samuel, at least, is a very powerful transition from one particular arena, name of the judges, to a much different one, the kingship. I'd like to take just a moment, though, and invite you to recollect with me some of the things found in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, because at least in terms of a principle, they are a bit helpful as we reach chapter 21. Eli, as I mentioned earlier, the second to the last judge, but the matter perhaps about him that we remember so readily is his sons were wicked. That is to say, Eli's sons did not have the godly disposition that he had, and so as they interacted with the people in a very sinful fashion, ultimately the people recognized they did not want someone like that reigning over them in the position of the, of the priesthood. That in part at least prompted them to ask Samuel for a king. Maybe it is in light of that that you readily note one of the other things I ask you to appreciate. The God of heaven handpicked Saul then to be that first king. But Saul, though he started out with such a powerful consideration, he soon made some very poor choices. He was stubborn. He in fact liked the, the understanding of the compliments of the people. And he loved that more than he loved serving God. And so it was that ultimately he was rejected because in 1 Samuel 15, of course, he didn't do explicitly what God told him to do. He spared many of the Amalekites. That brings us pretty closely then to chapter number 21. But before we get to that, might we at least pause to note this. Saul, though the first king he was, came to have a strong hatred toward David. David just was such that King Saul not only didn't like him, but tried to kill him on more than one occasion. He was so upset, so in fact brought to, to a matter of strange being because of him. You Perhaps you can well imagine. Here was David trying to respect the king trying to at least behave in a fashion to where he would be honorable concerning the king, or rather the, the decrees of God. And yet here was the king trying to take his own life. 
All of that brings us at least in part to the events of chapter 21. As you come to that, may I at least again mention that as we open chapter 21, David's on the run. He's having to flee from Saul. Saul again's out to get him, out to take his life. And I'd like to start reading in verse 1, and we'll read the first few verses of that chapter. Then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David, and said unto him, Why art thou alone, and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Let's pause there and at least make this observation. As David was fleeing from Saul, David now arrived at this little village called Nob. As you can see on that slide, this little village was certainly not one of the better known ones in ancient Israel, but as David arrived there, you'll notice that a gentleman named Ahimelech was the high priest serving, or at least the priest, the principal one serving in that community. You may notice that the priest was a bit bothered by David's coming. And he asked him, Why art thou alone? Even this priest understood that it would be more than likely that David would have comrades, that he would have individuals with him. And the fact that David was alone was rather troublesome to Ahimelech. The next verse goes on to say, David replied, The king, namely Saul, has given me a business, and he has wanted me, if I may paraphrase, to keep it secret. And therefore, no one is with me. You may notice now in verse number 3, we continue the record. Now therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what there is present. David and his minion, with her fleeing from Saul the way that they were, they were now without food. They had in fact expended it or used it in the course of their travels. They were now in desperate need of supplies. And so it was that David asked Ahimelech, Do you have any bread available? Do you have anything you can contribute to me and to specifically to that which I would have need of? The priest answers in verse 4, And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. David answered the priest in verse 5 and said, of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away." Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. And we'll stop our reading at that point. That is, in fact, the fullness of what I would invite us to consider in our lesson. As we move toward the close of that slide, let me summarize briefly what we saw. David has come to Nob while he himself was fleeing from Saul. And when he came there, being bereft of supplies, he asked Ahimelech for some bread. 
Ahimelech said, I don't have any common bread, but what I have is hallowed bread. And as you and I noted in verse 6, the priest actually gave this bread to David, and David ate of it. We're going to investigate somewhat about that this evening and ask the question, did the priest do what was right? Did the priest behave himself in a fashion that was pleasing to God? And furthermore, did David behave himself in a way that was pleasing to God? And what lessons might there be in these things that could be helpful to us? As far as a few observations as well as lessons, let's consider a first one. I've entitled it Peace of Mind. At this point, you may notice on that slide at least some rather immediate observations. Saul had already made some statements, some comments. And in fact, in the previous chapter, chapter 20, he had even spoken about his own son, Jonathan. And he rather frankly told Jonathan, as long as David is alive, you will not enjoy peacefulness. You will not enjoy a sense of attachment to the kingdom. But isn't that ironic? Here's Saul telling that to his son. Might we ask this question, did Saul have peace of mind? Was Saul a person convicted in his relationship to the God of heaven? And did he behave in a way that would be conducive to pleasing God? We've already learned tonight the answer to that. Saul had, in fact, disobeyed God. And as such, he himself had a mind that was rather, shall we say, perplexed. That evil spirit troubled him. It agitated him. It caused him to be upset. For that reason, look at some of these observations and let's apply it to us. Do you and I have peace of mind? Do you and I enjoy a sense of comfort and assurance about the kind of life that we're living and that which is its blessing and reward? It has often been noted that if you and I, in fact, lack that peace of mind, it isn't the fault of God. It isn't the fault of Jesus Christ. We do so because the wages of sin is death. And that agitation of heart and mind will be a consequence of, it will be due to the sense that we have not placed our trust in the fullness of our confidence in the God of heaven. Jesus Himself had said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, Matthew 6, 33. And it thus asserted that the physical issues in life We've been promised, and in a lovely way by the God of heaven, that He'll make sure those are provided. Peace of mind. Make this application with me from Isaiah 57. In the last two verses of that chapter, we have a rather monumental utterance relative to those that are the wicked. The wicked, the text says, are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. Isn't it interesting that Isaiah made that statement again, speaking for God, ages ago. The ancient Israelites in a day and time far different than our own, they nonetheless, if they didn't have peace of mind, and if they didn't have that sense of tranquility and serenity, they were supposed to check to see whether wickedness was the cause because they had been told there will be no peace to the wicked. To make application of that today is a rather evident thing, isn't it? 
we still live in the midst of a society, though quite different it is from what was true in ancient Israel, it still is the case that without that peace of mind, we should appreciate that it is not God's fault that it be that way. It is His will that we understand an element in peace and an element in appreciation and an ease to the understanding of what life is. I've asked you to notice a few more verses. Isn't Jesus an example of this? When His disciples were sufficiently bothered and distressed by things taking place around them, the Master Himself was asleep in the midst of a storm. As that storm raged on, on the Sea of Galilee in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 and following, it was a scene, a very tempestuous one. And the disciples were so distressed that they cried, Master, carest thou not that we perish? They thought they were going to die. They thought that storm was sufficiently fierce that it would lead to their death. And the Master was asleep. Doesn't that beg a question of us? In the midst of life's storms, we too may be allow ourselves to be blown about, and we may too lose that serenity if we find that we're not attached to Jesus. This text in 1 Samuel 21 seemingly reminds us about Saul and the problems he faced. You and I might remember when he began his reign, there was a great sense of attachment to God in chapters 9, 10, and 11. But when he began in his own stubbornness, to substitute His will for God's will, that's when Saul got into trouble. He allowed arrogance and pride to be his doom. He gave more consideration to what his feelings were rather than what God said. And he trusted in the wisdom of the people rather than God's declarations. As he did that, he lost that peace of mind. One of the saddest scenes in all the Old Testament Surely must be that scene when Saul was directly told, you've been rejected for one better than you. The kingdom has been taken away from you. And in chapter 26, Saul cries, if you please, before Samuel and says, please don't reject me. I've played the fool. I've erred exceedingly. Saul even made confession, I've been wrong. But that didn't undo the thing that God had said. Saul, you've been rejected. One better than you will be the next king. Maybe it is in that light you and I can close that chapter, make a final set of applications to us. Think about verses such as this one, Psalm 56, 11. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Now that's a rather amazing passage. To appreciate what authorities can do, what power they do possess. And yet the psalmist could say, I've put my trust in the Lord, and I won't be afraid what man can do unto me. As Christians, we have been given the grandest marching orders of all, and one of the blessed benefits is a sense of peacefulness and a harmony that the mission that we're serving is far higher than us. Another passage in Philippians 4 verse 11, in the midst of a prison, Paul made this statement. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Contentment. Now that goes hand in hand with peacefulness in mind, doesn't it? A sense that all is well with my soul. 
from time to time we sing that song, It is well with my soul. And when we can voice that with confidence and assurance, what a moving message it really is. This peace of mind that you and I have seen, doesn't it take us to Hebrews 13? Verses 5 and 6, if we just borrow a part of that pair of verses, didn't the Master say, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Now to those who love the Lord, of course, how comforting that verse is. Surely in light of all those things, you now can understand that even in the shadow of death, even when the matters in this life have reached a point where our demise, our departure may well be imminent, or at least there is sufficient danger, even then the Word of God says things like this, Psalm 23, 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The kind of comfort the Word of God makes available in part leads to a peacefulness in mind that transcends what this world can offer. I'll close that with one final observation from Philippians chapter 4. The peace of God that passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. I would hope each of us enjoy that peace of mind and are thankful each day for it. But may I say other lessons that you and I can notice here, in a way, point out some dramatic things that you and I should remember as we study the Word of God. I've entitled this one, David's Falsehood. You'll notice on that slide, I've asked you to consider that what is it that David said when he first came to the village of Nob and he had conversation with Ahimelech the priest. If I may again point you to verse 2 of 1 Samuel 21, it says, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee. David, in essence, says, The king has given me some business, and it's a secret business, and so I've come here, and that's why there's no one with me. Now, you and I should take careful note. David lied. Saul hadn't sent him to Nob. Saul had not given him a mission and told him to proceed here for a particular secret business. David told a falsehood. David did not tell the truth to Ahimelech. But with that being said, notice what follows. It's at this point that some might then assert, Well, how can this be? I thought David was a man after God's own heart. And yet David lied? Isn't this contradictory? Is the Word of God such that there's an error in light of this observation? It is true that David is called a man after God's own heart, borrowing the reading of 1 Samuel 13, as well as Stephen's unforgettable sermon. I'm sorry, Paul's unforgettable sermon in Acts 13. But surely in that connection, what might be made of this statement here concerning David? May I invite us to make this observation. The Bible does have within it some that you and I might regard so highly and treat so respectfully. 
among a list like that might be Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Daniel and no doubt David and a host of others. But one thing we should ever keep in mind, the Bible does not whitewash and does not ignore the sins and the mistakes of even those who otherwise were faithful. And that's also true of David. In 1 Samuel chapter 13 and chapter 14 and chapter 15, we have there a record of a man who was a man after God's own heart. This young youth we call David who was courageous, he was brave, he was devoted to God, he was consistent in his faithfulness. But by the time we reach this chapter, David had already begun to make a few errors. And you and I notice here, he lied. Now you and I can't excuse what David did. We cannot ignore the fact of what he chose to do. But with that, could we not say this? He isn't the only one in a category like this one. The Bible simply tells the truth, even about those who otherwise and in other times were faithful. In Genesis 15, as great a man as Abraham was, did he make a mistake? He made more than one of them. Genesis chapter 15, in fact, details that. And Genesis 20 will detail it again. But what about also Exodus chapter 20? We remember that occasion as well as some others. Moses made a mistake. Could I not invite us to recall in Numbers 20 when he chose to take the glory to himself rather than direct it to God? That, of course, wasn't wise. Perhaps one final one in Mark 14. Peter, as we often remember, there were times he said just exactly the thing that was right. You may recall in Matthew chapter 16 that when Jesus came into Caesarea Philippi, He said, Who do men say that I am? And they replied many things, including John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, one of the prophets. But then He said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said the thing that was perfectly right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now there, Peter was right on target. But may I say, in Mark 16, he was not on target. In that text, I've asked you to notice in Mark 14, three times he denied even knowing Jesus. I don't even know the man. And the third time, even cursed in light of that statement. May I again say, the Bible just tells the truth. When even those that otherwise would be its heroes made their mistakes, the Bible informs us in many cases about it. May I say in that light, some of the last comments there could then be at least a good reminder for us. There may be times of noteworthy faithfulness in your life and mine, but could there also be moments of stumbling? Could there be moments of weakness when I say the thing I should not? Sure there could. And I feel sure that all of us have been there at one time or another. We choose in a moment of weakness to behave in a way that we know better than this. But we fall prey to the weakness and we say what we should not or we fail to say what we should or we act in a way that we ought not. And afterward we're regretful. Afterward we're sorry we ever did it. But may I say in those cases, should we not be somewhat like David's aftermath of this? When David failed, he rushed back to the side of God. Psalm 51, 
is a beautiful presentation of the mindset of David. You recall the scene after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. At least three things in that chapter. He committed adultery, he was involved in drunkenness, and he was involved in deception. All three. And isn't it significant that in that chapter, David never once, is there any recourse of him pursuing God? He never prayed to God. He never asked God for wisdom or counsel. But isn't it interesting that in Psalm 51, after the prophet came to David and said, You're the man. You're the one that has sinned, and you're the one that has chosen to act in a way that is so sorrowfully different from what God would ask you to. David repented. Psalm 51 is the record of that repentance. With that in mind, could you and I now not close our slide this way? When you and I slip with our tongue and we say what we shouldn't, ask God to forgive you. Ask this person that you may have deceived or this person that you've spoken to, ask their forgiveness. Ephesians 4.29 reminds us, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And the, the, thus, just like any other sinful behavior, thankfully we can approach God and we can experience His forgiveness. David reminds us of that, doesn't he? You'll notice as we close that slide, what about yet another lesson? Something else that, of course, is one of the central features of our lesson tonight. I entitled the lesson, David and the Hallowed Bread. The Hallowed Bread. If you'd revisit chapter 21 with me, you'll again remember that David had come to Nob and he was in need of supplies for himself and his men. And he asked Ahimelech, Do you have any bread for us? And Ahimelech said, The only bread I have is hallowed bread. Oddly enough, in verses 4 and 5, the priest offered to give that to David upon a condition. Let's develop some of that like this. What's this hallowed bread to which the priest referred? If you and I revisit the book of Leviticus chapter 24, we have a record of what this hallowed bread was. If I revisit that and just read a few of the elements in that particular set of verses, you might remember that it went somewhat like this. Beginning again in verse number 5. And thou shalt take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof. Two tenth deals shall be in one cake. And thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place. For it is most holy unto him of the offerings of the Lord made by fire, by perpetual statute. You and I know otherwise that that bread was the showbread. It was positioned on the table of showbread that was just inside the holy place of the tabernacle. As you enter into it, you remember three pieces of furniture that were in that holy place. There was the altar of incense, the golden candlestick, and the table of showbread. 
And on that table were two stacks of bread with six loaves in each stack. And as you and I just noticed in verses 8 and 9, it rested upon that table, and that bread was changed every Sabbath. And when it was changed, you may notice in verse number 9 that it was to be eaten by certain individuals. Namely, verse 9, it shall be Aaron's and his son's. That bread was hallowed bread. It was to be eaten by the high priest Aaron and by his sons. And furthermore, it was to be eaten at the tabernacle. It was not to be taken anywhere else, nor was it to be eaten by anybody else. With all that in mind, then you notice on this slide, there are several things you and I could readily note. Ahimelech made a mistake. He should never have given that bread to David. David was not a high priest. He wasn't a priest at all. He was not authorized by God to eat it. Here's the second mistake in our lesson tonight David made. Not only had he lied to Ahimelech, we now notice Ahimelech had done what was wrong giving David the bread, and David was wrong in eating it. This is an interesting record, isn't it? These characters, though they ought to have known better, had chosen to act in a way that was not consistent with the teaching of the law of Moses. As you and I come near the bottom of that slide, you notice this priest made an interesting demand. Verse number 4, The priest answered and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. There was no authority in the law of Moses for someone else on a condition of sexual purity to eat this hallowed bread. God had dictated it was only for the priests and it was only to be eaten at the tabernacle. We cannot justify what Ahimelech did either. As you and I close this slide though, it leads us to make an observation based on the New Testament. If you'd like to hold your finger here, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12 and listen to how Jesus refers to this event. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse number 1. At that time Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and His disciples were hungered, and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto Him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. Before we continue reading, we might pause and say this. Jesus, of course, had already been teaching for quite some time by this point, And He and His disciples on a particular occasion, which was a Sabbath, were told those disciples as they walked through some grain, they picked it with their hand and were eating it. Verse number 2, the Pharisees were watching this and they called into question. And they asked this question. Of Jesus, they said, Why do your disciples do what is not lawful? These Pharisees were under the understanding that it's the Sabbath and there is no work to be done and what they're doing constitutes work. You're not supposed to harvest on the Sabbath. That's what they're doing, Jesus. Verse number 3, How did Jesus reply? But he, that's Jesus, said unto them, that's these Pharisees, Have ye not read what David did, when he was an hungered, and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God, and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, 
neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. Jesus echoed the statement we just made. David was not authorized to eat that showbread. Jesus said so. You'll notice he said, which was not lawful for him to eat. Now, if you and I pause at this point and say, David, for the Pharisees and for the Jews of the Lord's day, David was a hero. They looked up to David very highly. He was the king who released them from a lot of the particular enemies of the Old Testament. He conquered many of those peoples, and the people enjoyed peace under David's reign. And for that reason, the Pharisees and the other Jews looked up so highly to David. In fact, they lifted him up so highly that they often overlooked his mistakes. Jesus directly here mentions one You lift David up so highly. Well, let me ask you a question, the Lord would say. What about that time he entered into the holy place and he ate what it was not lawful for him to eat? What will you say about that? Now, you and I might at least ponder that as that continues, verse 5 goes on to say, Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, David made a poor decision. And the poorness of that decision in part takes us to a discussion of consistency. You and I would wish in every case to always be consistent before God. And by that I mean this, we ought never try to justify something in ourselves that we condemn in somebody else. In other words, we ought never to try to make it out okay of what we're doing when somebody else is doing the exact same thing, and yet we're quick to condemn them. It somewhat reminds us of, "...judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged." And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured unto you again, Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. These Pharisees, you see, were quick to defend David, overlooking the mistake that he made, and yet they, in part, were somewhat guilty of the same. They were charging his own disciples with what was not an error. The Old Testament had never said it was wrong to gather some grain in your hand on the Sabbath. They, in essence, were making laws where God didn't make any. They defined that to be work when in fact it wasn't. Now, if you particularly hitched up the camel or a mule or an ox and you went out and harvested a whole field of grain on the Sabbath, well, clearly that that would have been wrong. But the Old Testament had not said that it was wrong as you walk in a short distance to gather a few grain pods. And yet they were charging the Lord's disciples with error when in fact there was no error involved. Sometimes we have to be mighty cautious about things like that. We can be quick to see the speck in somebody else's eye when we overlook the plank in our own. And we can be quick sometimes to make a law for something somebody else is doing when God never made any such law like that. We must never legislate for God. He has made His own legislation. He has given His full and complete will, and it's perfect as it is, 1 Corinthians 13.10. For that reason, why don't we summarize at least a few thoughts additionally about this hallowed bread. 
What a glorious thing consistency is. To behave each day in a way that's holy. Understanding that the things that God has declared are things that we strive to live to each day, not just on Sunday, not just on Wednesday, but to appreciate every day, be it our language, be it the way we think, be it the actions of our life, for those things that we wish to be consistent with the things of God. David took hallowed bread and he ate it and he gave it to men with him. It wasn't lawful for any of them to eat it, but they did. There was inconsistency here. David, on other times, was a man after God's own heart, but he sure stumbled in chapter 21. I hope you and I, when we stumble, that we will too recognize that position is not hopeless, but race back to the faithful side of the one that we love, the faithful side of God. And we strive to behave in a way again that He would find pleasing and acceptable. Jesus went on to say in Matthew chapter 12, verse number 7, But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. Did you know what Jesus said? They tried to condemn Jesus' disciples, and Jesus said they're guiltless. They have not done anything wrong. We've got to be cautious and lift high the banner of God's truth and not make any laws that He hasn't made. There are many splinters in Christianity in part that have come from mistakes men have made like that. The religious movement that some would call the anti-movement is a group of people who've made laws that God never made. And they make it test for fellowship. And in sadness... That's caused many a division and many a difficulty. We have to appreciate the fact then that in the grandeur of the Word of God, we can learn much from this scene in 1 Samuel 21. Tonight, if there's anyone in the audience, in this group of people, that finds yourself separated from God, we want you to know that the God of heaven loves each of us, and He wants more than anything for us to be faithful servants of His. If we could be of assistance to you tonight, maybe as an alien sinner you'd wish to become a Christian, you can do that tonight. As you exemplify faith in Jesus Christ, as you believe in Him, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized, you of course will be washed clean from sin. If you have begun that walk with Him but have not remained faithful, you have chosen to act in ways that have brought disgrace upon the church and disgrace upon the Lord who died for you and disgrace upon the marvel and the message of the gospel. You realize you can be forgiven of that, just like David could be. But you, of course, need to repent of it, make confession of it, and we'll be honored to pray to God on your behalf. This song of encouragement has been selected. If we could be of assistance to you, we'd like to do that at once while together we stand and while we sing.